Well, we are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're marching forward and um, we're, we're almost there, almost there. Um, I, would, I would suggest that perhaps one more week, next week may be the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark. After how many years now? Five? So five years or so? So well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Um, please turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at the last verse of chapter 15. We didn't look at it last time, and we will also continue to look at chapter 16 from verse 1 to 3. So uh, 47 of chapter 15 all the way to Chapter 16, verse 3, is the reading of the word this morning. And the word of God says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I titled this message, The Characteristics of True Love the characteristics of true love. And uh, by way of introduction, I do want to ask a very direct questions. And please do open your heart and do some self-examination uh, from the very beginning of the message so that um, it can have effect in our lives. So those are the questions that I have for you, for us all. Who is Jesus Christ to us? Do we truly love him? Are we growing in that love for him? Is he a very personal savior to you? And can you say, that I have this communion with him, fellowship with him day by day. Why I ask these questions? Because sadly, there are many people who perceive Jesus as some set of rules, some policies and procedures. So long as I comply and follow his rules, I'm okay. I won't be troubled from the boss who lives in heaven. And though there may be Christians who say this or think this way, their obedience is only born out of fear. And yet there are others that view Christ as um, multivitamin powder, syrup, if you like, that tastes really off. You know which ones I'm talking about, right? The ones that you mix with some fruit to try to 
tone it down so that the bad flavor can go away, but you just can't get rid of it. But uh, because you want to stay healthy, what else can you do? So what do you do? You kind of have to squeeze your nose and scull it down. Now, because you have to do this routinely every week, perhaps once or three times a week or seven days a week, well, this is what you do. But in your heart, you, you want this multivitamin to stay as far away from you as you possibly can. Now, whether Jesus is set of rules or unpleasant vitamins, those people, to them, Jesus is an impersonal savior. A good concept, yes, a, a pretty cool system to be part of, but not a person to have a deep, real relationship with. And that is sad. These people, they read the Scripture. They love reading great theological books. And, and when they come across some nifty doctrine, some good doctrine, they like it just as much as someone who likes to do crossword puzzles because it stimulates their intellect. But in reality, their, their affections are untouched. Their love for the Savior is at best shallow, superficial. They like the fact that Jesus bore their sins. Well, who doesn't? But, but the reason why they like it is so that they can pursue their own ambitions, whether their, their um, um, career path or family lifestyle. In other words, in, in order to stop their conscience nagging in them while they are in pursuit of their worldly dreams, what do they do? They'll take the vitamin. They'll comply with the set of rules. And that's sad. And that's sad because this kind of people miss the whole point as to why even Jesus came and died. And assessing how they live their lives, it seems that they believe that so long as that they read the Bible, that they come to church and add on top of that, deliver a decent life, somehow God is pleased with them. These people I just described are either Christians who lost their first love or even perhaps they're not Christians at all. Beloved, brothers, sisters, Jesus is a personal being. In fact, he's a very personal being. And when he came, he revealed to us that this personal being is so lovable. When he bore our sins, he bore our griefs and sorrows. He actually felt disgusted and anguished for every sin he bore for us. When the Father forsook him, he was actually forsook by the Father for you and I, meaning he was cursed by the Father, crushed by the Father. He felt that. Jesus is a relatable being. 
is so relatable that the scripture tells us that he's profoundly intimate with each one of his own people beyond our thinking or imagination. He's so closer to you and I than our flesh and bones are close to each other. Romans 6 verse 6 tells us that we were crucified with him when he was crucified. Colossians 3 verse 3, we actually died with him when he died. Romans 6 verse 4, we were buried with him when he was buried. And we were raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Our lives are hidden in him. Even his own ascension and glorification is our ascension and glorification. In other words, long before we were even born, God considered Christ to be so intimate with us, like hands in gloves and even more, that that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for faceless nameless blob of people. No, because he is so personal in every way. Even his own redemption is amazingly personal. And the purpose of his death is very clear in the scripture. And it is not to live a decent life. No, it is to live a radical life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. It reads that he died for all. And why did he die for all? So that we would live a decent life? No. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves. It's black and white. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And it is not meant to be a begrudging kind of living for him lifestyle. No. It means that his death for us ought to move the the deepest core of our affection. It ought to enlarge our hearts and raises our commitments such that, that we become so devoted to live exclusively for Christ. Willingly following his footsteps eagerly clinging to his heart, freely obeying his word, and always longing for his return. Such that that we choose him, not just over the devil, but over and above even our strongest affections, whether to our children, spouses, or money. Luke 14, 26. Such that whether we eat or drink, we do all things in order to exalt his name. 1 Corinthians 10.31 But it's no longer about us where we live so that we would be most convenient. No. Or, Or who we hang out with so that we feel most comfortable. But our ambition is to please him everywhere. All the time. 2 Corinthians 5 9. This is what the scripture says. And anything falls less than that 
is not the purpose for which Jesus died. And these women in this narrative that we're going to look at shortly are a great example for all of us to help us understand what it means to truly love Christ by following him, not as following set of rules or some system, no, but as our personal savior, as the Lord of our heart. What does this mean? I pray that as we begin to examine the devotion of these women to Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged to continue to behold Christ as our personal Savior. And in so doing, that we would cheerfully and freely live our lives consistent with the true purpose as to why he came and died. What does it look like to live for him? Truly loving him. What does that look like? Well. Let's have a look at verse 47. And the first point is true love. True love follows continually. True love for our Savior compels us to follow him continually. Now, I love this verse because it reveals how that burning love in the heart of this woman looked like for Jesus even after he died. So we read in verse 47, Mary Magdalene, we looked at this perhaps two sermons earlier. She's the woman from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. And please let us think carefully, seven demons in a woman. You can just imagine a kind of dark lifestyle she was living in. Life of misery and and loneliness, life of guilt and grief. Yet Jesus set her free. He opened her heart. And so she loved him much. Why? Because she's forgiven much. Then we come to the second uh, woman and it says, And Mary, the mother of Joseph. Again, this is Mary, the mother of James, the apostle, the one who's Uh, Sometimes the Gospels call him James the Less and others James the son of Alphaeus. And the question that begs us to ask is, where is James her son? Where is Alphaeus her husband? Again, they're scattered somewhere, hiding for their lives. Who knows, maybe they're taking cover under a rock or a You know, out of fear, they sucking their thumb like little boys. And they, they let, they let their mama uh, wear the pants of, of the family to lead spiritually. Are these marriage? Look what they're doing. It says, they were looking on to see where he was laid. So they were at the cross. And they saw Joseph of Arimathea carrying the body of Jesus. And um, again, it's to all obstacles. They tracked Joseph to see where he was going to bury Jesus. These women loved Jesus. And their love bound their whole lives to our Lord. 
And they were willing to pursue Christ wherever he was. Those who take Jesus as their impersonal savior, what do they do? They only do bare minimum of following him. They walk around with stiff neck and their noses are to the ceiling. And then they say, I don't have to come to, to this fellowship. I don't have to attend that study. Well, why not? Well, I'm kind of too busy playing games. Or I don't want to miss out on a late night show. But then again, you, don't, you can't hold it against me. It's not a sin, is it? Don't be legalistic. Back off. Leave me alone. Well, what do you do? You've got to back off. You've got to leave him alone. Right? But I love what the scripture says. Because in a corresponding passage in, in a parallel account in the gospel of Luke, verse 23, chapter 23, verse 55, it says, Now the women, listen to this, who had come with him, that is Jesus, out of Galilee, followed. Out of Galilee. They're in Jerusalem. And they followed. And look what it says, and saw the tomb. So they went to the cross, and after the cross, they went to the tomb, and how he was, his body was laid. They were following Jesus all the way from Galilee. They're willing to follow him even to the lion's den or in a fiery furnace if they have to. Brothers and sisters, true love for Jesus is not satisfied with the bare minimum kind of following. True love for Jesus does not follow Christ kind of dragging behind a dead weight. Feeling that you're kind of carrying big burden when you're following Christ. No. It compels you to follow him continually. It changes your heart. You're sorry, you're, yeah, your heart to his feet. It takes pleasure to live in his shadow. True love says, where Jesus is, I'll be there. His GPS coordinates are my GPS coordinates. And for these women, whether it was darkness or light, whether it was earthquake or rain, whether Jesus was in Galilee, Jerusalem, or buried way outside of the city. If you want to know where these women are, find out where Jesus is. Whether alive or dead, and you will find these women there, either resting at his feet, listening to his word, or ministering to him. True love for Christ follows him continually. And second point is true love for Christ serves him sacrificially. They're going to sacrificially give of their resources even when Jesus was dead. So we read in Chapter 16, verse 1, it says, when the Sabbath was over. So we just looked at verse 47, and it was just about um, 
uh, Friday now it's Sabbath, and uh, Sabbath now is over. So that white space from verse 47 to uh, chapter 16, verse 1, in that white space, it was 24 hours that passed. It was the entire uh, Sabbath day. Remember, it's from um, 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 evening to evening. And now at 6 p.m. Uh, on Saturday evening, no, now it was just before they woke up because it says in early in the morning later on, but 6 p.m. on Saturday evening, that was the end of Saturday, and it was the beginning of Sunday. Shops are opened up again, and these women would go and they would look for spices, they would buy it in the marketplaces in order to anoint our Lord. Uh, these women were so faithful. Let's continue reading. It says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, so the same Mary's there. And now you've got Salome here. Her name popped up again. Her name was there in chapter 15. And it arises, if you recall, she's the mother of James and John, the apostles. So you've got now here three diehard loyal disciples following Jesus wherever he is. And when they followed Christ, they were not passive. They were not just consumers. They were not spectators. True, genuine love cannot remain idle. It compels you to serve whom you love. So we read and it says, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Now, um, we've gone through this several times in the previous passages as to the purpose of those spices and the anointing. And basically, it is a strong fragrance that you uh, purchase and you are meant to spread it over the corpse, over the dead body, so to counteract the odor that comes out of the decaying of the body. Now, when I, when I read this, uh, many questions popped up in my head as I trust that will probably, if you give it some time, you would begin to think about those questions. For example, um, didn't they see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus already wrap Jesus with spices worth millions of dollars, as we looked at earlier? In John 19, verse 3. Well, yes, they did. They saw Joseph of Arimathea. And you can't miss it, even if you wanted to. The spice is worth millions of dollars. Second question is, didn't, didn't Mary, the sister of Lazarus, already anoint Jesus uh, with fragrance worth over $60,000 just six days earlier? Yes, she did. Well, why then did these women uh, want to come again and anoint Jesus? They didn't have to spend that much money. It was not a sin. There is nowhere in the scripture that there, it commands him to do so. Besides, why spend so much more money for a dead man when he can't smell it anyway? It seems like it's a waste of time and money. And please note, no one was pushing them to do this. No one was forcing it on them to do it. So why? Why spend so much money? Why make such great sacrifices? And I believe these women would respond back and say, you don't understand. But Jesus revived our souls. 
He saved us from eternal death. We were with him all this time and he lifted us up. He encouraged us. He spoke words of life to us. How can we not love him back? Regardless of who did what. It was his love that constrained us. It was his love that compelled us to love him back sacrificially. Mary Magdalene would would cry out to us and she would say, I was in a dark place. Demons were harassing me all day long, but Jesus set me free. He set me free. I cried out to him and he had mercy on me. He cleansed me and filled my heart with his joy. Is it too much to offer him my life as a service to him? Much less my possessions or my time. And the other Marys would would respond and, and they would say, he had mercy upon us and upon our children. He saved our boys. He chose them to be his own apostles. And he's been faithful to them all this time, all the way till the end. We we entrusted our lives to him. Jesus is our portion, our refuge, our shelter. It is our privilege to make whatever sacrifices for him. Superficial love says, what is the bare minimum that I can do for Jesus? How can I serve him just enough to be accepted by uh, perhaps the church community and yet not to inconvenient my flesh? Right? That's what superficial love says. I'm I'm a bit tired today. I'm not sure if I'm willing to serve. If I'm not tired, I'll serve. And so Jesus died. He was buried. We better stay at home and just reflect on on his death and perhaps learn new theology. Something that we may not even apply in our lives ever. But it fascinates our brain, our intellect. Brothers. There is no true love if if all that we do is to sit around and let grass grow between our toes. Paul says in Philippians 2.17, I am being poured out as a drink offering. He says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if you if I love you more. Am I not loved by you? And when our God wanted to show that he loves us, he gave us his only son. Right? For these devoted women, it wasn't enough for them to just remember him. It wasn't enough for them to stay at home. Their attitude was not, what is the bare minimum that I can do? No. Their attitude was, What 
else can I do for Christ's sake? What other aspects of my life that I'm eager to spend for His glory? Why? Because I am compelled to give Him all I got. True love serves sacrificially. And number three, true love attends to Christ promptly, urgently, eagerly. Why? Because he is the highest priority of my life. And so we read that in verse 2. It says, very early on the first day of the week. First day of the week. They don't say Sunday because the Jews don't name the days of the week like we do here. Um, they give them numbers. I come from Egypt, we do the same thing. We give them numbers, we don't give them names. And the Sabbath is the seventh day, that's what Sabbath is, uh, which is Saturday. So Sunday, that what we call, is the first day of the week. John, in the book of Revelation, calls it the Lord's Day. We know from history, and even the book of Acts, early Christians began to keep Sunday, not Saturday, Sunday, holy for the Lord to distinguish that they are different, different religion, not, not just a different sect from the Jewish religion. So they moved to Sunday. And please note, a day of rest, not just a, a morning of rest, a day of rest still remains to be part of the Ten Commandments, by the way. What was made obsolete is the ceremonial part of it, which is the Sabbath. But the day of rest, the day of the Lord, always remained to be in effect, to keep the whole day holy. We'll look at that maybe another message later on. But just to, to, to keep the morning holy is not biblical. You won't find this in, in the scripture. It's always the Lord's day. That's not been abolished. And perhaps maybe after we finish the Gospel of Mark, I will address this subject from the Scripture. Anyway, we'll continue on. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now please note, it says, it does not say just early. It says very early, very early. Matthew says, it, as it began to dawn. Luke says, at early dawn, but check John, all right? It's just amazing. John 20 verse 1 says, while it was still dark. Okay, so we have four witnesses and each one gives his own different timing of the event. Which one was right? Was it John or was it Matthew or Mark or Luke? Answer, they were all right. They're just looking at different snapshots of the event, which means if you look at it carefully, it means that, they, that these women didn't waste any time to attend to Christ. When it was pitch black, when everyone was still asleep in the middle of their dreams, quickly they jumped out of their beds, they left their homes, they hit the ground running, and by the time they arrived to the tomb, outside of the city, mind you, it was still very early in the morning. What does that say? 
It speaks of urgency, right? It speaks of importance. Christ is number one in their lives. They didn't procrastinate. They didn't say, oh, oh well, um, I need to do this first and that first and I'll get into it later. You know, when I have extra time, when I have spare time, at the end of the day, I'll get on with it. No. They were serious about their commitment to Christ. They, they were not dragging their feet. They were, like David said in his Psalms, Oh God, you are my God. What? Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Early will I seek you. There is, there is nothing sacramental about that. It just speaks of priority in life. How eager were these women? To attend to our Lord. How zealous were they to serve him? That They were like dogs that had their tails set on fire. And they ran to Christ to attend to him. Brothers, sisters, does this describe us? Do we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else? Like these ladies did. Do we seek his kingdom first in our finance, first in our relationships, first in our conversations, first in our serving Christ? Would to God that Saving Grace Bible Church would be known as a church that always, all the time, would be seeking the kingdom of God first above all things, and everything else that we do will become subservient to that first thing that we seek. Amen? All right, fourth point. As I said, there are five, so now fourth point, true love overcomes challenges. Overcomes challenges. Verse 3. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now again, these women, they saw Joseph of Arimathea carrying the body of Jesus all the way to the tomb. And then as he buried him in there and wrapped him with the linen clothes, then he came out and rolled a massive stone at the entrance of the tomb, they saw all that and they saw that it was a huge stone. And now, a day later, and after they came to the tomb, they asked this question. Didn't they know about this obstacle to begin with? Besides the massive stone, there were other obstacles that they were challenged by. There were mountains to climb, Mount of Olives and Temple Mount. And, and th they would have had this social stigma attached to them because they were going to be identified with Jesus. 
the rebel. Why did they commit to this task that is beyond their ability? Superficial love looks at obstacles and comes out of it and then concludes, oh well, I guess, I guess it's not God's will for me. Oh, it's a sign from God not to go and anoint Jesus. Actually, maybe the thought that counts, so it's not too bad. I actually wanted to go, but I couldn't. Let's just stay at home. But these ladies, they were positive. They were proactive. They couldn't accept a no for just a a quick answer. There were no excuses in their minds. Even if they can't roll the stone, they faithfully did whatever they could in their ability to prepare the spices, to go to Jesus. And what did they do? They trusted God with the outcome. Why? Let me tell you why. The foundation of true love is genuine trust. Trust in God, faith in God. We walk by faith, not by sight, is the heart and the foundation of the true, genuine love for Jesus Christ. Brothers, sisters, how many times do we look at an unbeliever and say, oh, I don't think that he will ever believe, so why bother sharing the gospel with him? And then we stop. May we learn from these women. May we place our hearts in the furnace of God's love, always burning with love for our Savior in such a way that even if circumstances tell us that we will fail, in the name of our strong, mighty God, we will commit to the task anyway, even if we look like fools before the world. And when we are brought into question and people ask us, why do we do things that seem to be silly in their eyes? Our response would be, we love Christ. We love Christ. He's worth it for us to share the gospel 150 times if we have to, to the same person, even if he refuses to believe. We walk by faith, not by sight. We'll leave the outcome in the hands of God. If God would choose to roll the stone off his heart, we'll leave that in God's hands. True love overcomes challenges. We don't look at the outcome that will determine what we do. We do what we do as an act of worship to our great God. Number five, the last one, is true love takes big risks. Again, superficial love takes little risks. It's not like it doesn't take risks. It does take risks, but little. It's not daring love. Shallow love says, if I'm going to get into big trouble, I'm not in it. What for? No deal. First John chapter 4, 
verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, that is true love, that is genuine love, casts out fear. 2 Timothy 1, 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, timidity, but of power and love and discipline. I needed to bring this fifth point, that true love, willing to take big risks. Because remember the context in which this passage was written. Let's think about it, brothers and sisters. It was when the Jewish leaders ambushed our Lord. The Roman government brutally crucified him. The whole crowd mocked him. And even the disciples, these um, macho men, strong men, they fled for their lives and had their tails between their legs, if you like. And these women, again, mind you, it's not a sin if they didn't do what they did. But it's not about whether it's a sin or not. What did these women do? They stepped out of the shadow and into the spotlight. They were the last at the cross. The only ones at his burial. The first to the empty tomb. And the first to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is very, very dangerous. Any of these actions could have deemed them to be worthy of capital punishment. Because to whether identify with a crucified rebel against Rome, it it would have been a matter of treason. Or to, to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is blasphemy. And whether it's treason or blasphemy, The punishment is death. Again, those who have Jesus as their impersonal savior, they operate by the wisdom of this world. To them, they would look at these women and assess them, and they would say these women are fools. Why should they risk their lives for a dead cause? Shouldn't these women run away for shelter? And when the sun settles down, sorry, when the dust settles down, then they begin to share the good news. That way they perhaps will be more effective for the kingdom of God. Right? But these women's love defied the wisdom of the world. Their heart was burning red hot for our Lord Jesus. And there was this unquenchable fire in their bones for Christ that not the brutality of the Roman soldiers nor the condemnations of their religious leaders could ever put it down. True love doesn't preserve devotion for next week. It spends it all now. True love has no understanding of self-preservation. There is, self-preservation is not a virtue of, in the scripture. It is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a heroic kind of love. 
It is an audacious love. So as we come to the end, what do we get out of this? How is it that they didn't fear the assault of the Roman soldiers who hated the Jews, meaning they hated them? How come they weren't terrified of the corrupt Jewish leaders? I mean, they, they could have easily condemned them to death. Again, it's, we cannot emphasize that enough. The love of Christ was shed abroad in their hearts. This blazing compassion of Christ, His mercy, His love was made so personal to them. It gripped their souls. And they were persuaded that Jesus meant everything to them. They were magnetized to the loveliness of his personhood, like, like bees to the, to the flowers. So when everyone fled, they took the risk and they hung there. I want to ask you this very important question. Do we, do we still behold Jesus as our personal savior? Are we more like the coward disciples who would run away, run for shelter? Or are we more like these great women of faith? Now, lest anyone may ever be mistaken and think that Mark here is advocating the feminist movement. Because it's not about that. It's not about that at all. In fact, feminist movement says, yes, we can. If men can do it, we can do it too. Yes, we can. But this is precisely the heart of the problem with the disciples. Remember, the reason why those men didn't show up wasn't because they had no confidence. No, on the contrary. It was because of their, they had full confidence in the flesh. They thought they could muscle up their courage on their own apart from relying on Christ. And the result was catastrophe. And they've gone down in history as those who forsook the Savior when they should have been there with Him. So for those women to be so audacious, to, to be so courageous, they were most definitely furthest away from the feminist movement, furthest away from having confidence in their flesh. They must have seen themselves as needy people, broken people. Their flaws and their failures were ever before their eyes. And they would have been convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that they always needed Christ for more cleansing, more strengthening. And so the, the song that says, I need thee, I need thee, every hour I need thee, would have been written in their very DNA. And so... They had no other option but to rest upon Christ, to cling to Him 
when the disciples didn't. Now, as I come to the end and about to land the plane, I want to say something that is so audacious. And I don't really normally say this behind the pulpit. Not as much as I should, probably. I thank God that we have in our midst um, women as these women. And you want to hear something probably even more audacious? I would dare to say that if some of the women that we have in Saving Grace Bubble Church lived back then 2,000 years ago, they would have been there at the cross. And I praise God for these women. And this is a call for us men. Men. We've got to do inventory check. Examine our hearts and lives. And don't get me wrong. I thank God for the men here in this church. Coming in week in, week out, hearing messages like this. Praise God for you. But God didn't call us to be spectators and cheer these women on in their race for their devotion for Jesus Christ. No. God called us here, men, to be the leaders in the church and at home. So we've got to step up. We've got to be in the game. We've got to do the hard work to wrestle against the flesh and against our own self-righteousness and lead our women in the church and at home in following Jesus Christ. But how can we lead them spiritually if we don't outdo them in our devotion and love for Jesus? How? How do we do this? If Jesus said, he who has forgiven much, loves much. How can we love much if we're not enjoying the fact that we are forgiven much? And how can we enjoy that we are forgiven much if we don't sense that we do sin much, that we that we grieve our, over our sin much? How can we do that if we're not convinced that we are needy men? May we not be like Esau who handed over his birthright to his brother. May we never hand over our leadership to our women because of what? Our self-confidence or love for the world? Let us be convinced, men, that we are needy, that we are beggars and will always be beggars and we die beggars for Jesus' sake. Let it also be written in the very fabric of our DNA, that same song that says, I need thee, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Let's pray. 
Lord God. Here we are, small church, far removed from the rest of the world, in the northwest, low socioeconomic. And though we may not have to offer much, but whatever we offer, Lord, we pray that it is all of our lives, just like these women did. Lord, we pray that our love for Christ opens our eyes to how powerful, sovereign you are, and that we would be compelled to serve you sacrificially, not trying to strategically calculate the outcome, whether we will be successful or not, but just to enjoy worshipping you, devoting our lives to you, Lord. Father, your son is worth it. If Jesus did not hold back, but gave his entire spirit and soul and flesh, for us because he loves us what is it that we would hold back from giving him in return not so that we would obtain eternal life but out of a grateful heart because he already accomplished for us great redemption and granted to us eternal life May we grow in our gratitude towards Jesus in a very real way where he becomes so personal to us that we will grow in our love for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.